0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Octopulse, taking the pulse of the Red Wings rebuild under Steve Iserman in year three. I'm Detroit News Assistant Sports Editor Mark Faulkner, joined by our beat reporter, Ted Colfin. Coming up, we'll hear from former Red Wings forward Nick Libet. He'll talk about Red Wings legend Alex Delvecchio, who will celebrate his 90th birthday in Rochester Hills on Saturday with family and friends. But first, Ted, Your story in today's Detroit News, the headline at DetroitNews.com, Lucas Raymond playing the right way, leading an impressive Red Wings rookie trio. As your story indicated, Raymond leads all rookies with 22 points. Marit Sider leads all rookies in assists with 14 assists. And... Alex Nadelkovich leads all rookies with seven victories and a 923 save percentage. Here's Raymond right away on his quick start this year. I
1: think my main thing is just trying to go out there and, and skate harder every night. I feel like if I'm playing with pace, I, I get into situations with, with speed and I get out of them with speed as well and get closer to the puck and get the puck uh, as much as possible. So I think that's my, uh, my main thing coming into games and practices.
0: So, Ted, there you have Lucas Raymond talking about his responsibilities at both ends of the rink. And, you know, you said you didn't expect Raymond to be this good, this quick. He's just 19. But those three rookies have led the team to a 12-9-4 start. They've won four in a row. They're in fourth place in the Atlantic Division, heading into Saturday's home game against the Islanders, who've lost nine in a row. We really didn't see this coming, though, did we, Ted, about Raymond, Sider, and Delkovich?
1: Mark the whole 90 yards. I, didn't, I don't think any of us expected 12, 9, and 4 at this mm. point. I, I think all of us maybe had an inkling they we were going to be good, young, helpful, productive players, but not to this extent. Mm. I mean, they've been impressive, and especially Raymond. I mean, you look at the way he plays. Mm-hmm. He looks like a veteran out there. Just the savvy, the the savviness he has, and just the instincts on the ice. He knows where to get to on the ice. Uh, Very subtle, great passer. The shot—I mean, that shot—the goal he had the other night. I mean, this guy's got ten goals. He's on pace for what? About maybe thirty goals, or twenty-five to thirty goals. Mm -hmm. He's done much, much more than expected. He's a runaway. I would say maybe not the runaway leader for the Calder tr- trophy, at least uh, at least the le- leader by far over excited, mm-hmm. not too far, but it's been, a, those three have been fantastic. Nadelkovich has come on, come on here lately taking over the starters role. I'll tell you, Mark, if all three of them continue to play the way they are, mm-hmm. who knows where this team could go. I mean, uh, are they a playoff team? Maybe we need to start thinking or t- talking about it that way.
0: Let's hear now from Coach Jeff Blaschel about the Red Wings' infusion of talent, these three young rookies, and how the team's resiliency has played a big role in writing their own story after one quarter of the season.
2: You know, I think there's there's a number of sides to to, to being able to be resilient. And, and as I've talked about, part of it's just having a little bit, more, you know, an infusion of talent. But but that's not everything. and And part of it is the fact that um, you know the care level of our guys is extremely high. Our guys want to uh, get get our uh, organizations, um, you know, train on the right uh, in the right path, and and they want to have a, a, a really good season. They want, you know, every year you get a, you get an opportunity to kind of, as I've talked about, write your own story, and this group has that opportunity, and and um, you know, and I think there's a lot of uh, guys who uh, are committed to. to Trying to do everything they can to, to win hockey games. And that might sound trivial, but it's not. Like, uh, uh, you know, when you're in, in any sports, I don't care if it's pro sports or what. Uh, or, or college, or, or you know, youth sports. Like there's there's times where you have teams that are selfish and 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 maybe aren't totally committed. To, uh, the the number one goal being winning. And there's there's times you know which I think this team has um, where the number one goal is winning. And and certainly everybody wants to have a big piece of it, and everybody wants to play a lot and all that stuff. But but in the end, we're willing to, to kind of uh, um, you know put aside some of those personal things to try to win hockey games. And I think that's been part of the reason why we've been able to be resilient.
0: Ted, it's way too early, of course. But is Jeff Blaschel among the early 10 to 12 candidates for NHL Coach of the Year? And a bit of perspective here, of course. Half of the 32 teams, 16 teams right now, Ted, are at least three games over 500. And, of course, there are hotter teams right now. The Stars have won six straight. The Leafs and Wild have won five straight. The Rangers, under Gerard Golan, who was rumored to replace Jeff Blaschel, have won four straight just like the Red Wings. And there are so many good coaches among those teams. There's John Cooper, Peter Laviolette, Rod Brindamore, who won the award last year, Daryl Sutter. But what about Blaschel, though? You could make the case, Ted, coming out of training camp, as we just mentioned, they had one of the NHL's historically bad power plays, a mixture of rookies and middle-of-the-road players, and they seem destined to wind up maybe another eight or 10 games under 500 and miss the playoffs for the sixth straight year, and they still might. But what about Blaschel's role so far with this quick start, 12, 9, and 4?
1: He's done a wonderful job, Mark. I think he's mm-hmm. guided this team perfectly. I mean, he's, he's, been, he's been through the bad times, just like some of the nucleus of this team. And it, I, the way that they've come out of the last, that they've gained a lot of experience the last couple of years, you could tell they're much more, a much more mature team. Right, right. They have a really good pulse on this team. And, I I tell you, Mark, I think he'd be one of the leading contenders for Coach of the Year at this point. I mean, again, I don't think any of us had them 12-9-4 and, and right in the thick of things with Tampa and Boston at this point. Now, here's the thing, my friend. If you look at the December schedule, we really will know more about these guys in mm-hmm. the month of December. There are not very many, if any, cupcakes at all. There's a lot of Tough teams, one after another. I think, now I, I know, we're going to know more about this team
0: mm-hmm.
1: after they play Washington on New Year's Eve. By that time, we, they will have gone through a gauntlet. I mean, there's a lot of playoff-tested teams here this month. If they're still sitting more or less where they are right now, mm-hmm. Tell you, my friend, I'll take my cap off to him. It's going to be quite the – that will be more of a surprise even at this point of the schedule.
0: Ted, I really like that idea about the uh, momentum, the things that were built the last couple years under Blaschel and now things are better. You know, a quick history lesson on this Jack Adams trophy and the connection to the Red Wings. The trophy, of course, is named after the Red Wings' longtime coach, and GM, Jack Adams. In my story today on Delvecchio's 90th birthday, Delvecchio told me about Jack Adams always asking Gordy how could you use a longer stick, Gordy? Could you use mm-hmm. a longer stick? Well, Gordy wound up with 786 goals in Detroit, and Delvecchio assisted on 210 of those goals. But the award goes to the, quote, the NHL coach judged to have contributed the most to his team's successes. It's voted on by members of the NHL Broadcasters Association, with voters getting a first, second, and third place vote. Red Wings coach Jacques Demers. Ted, is the only coach to win the award in consecutive seasons. Scotty Bowman won it twice. And the Wings are the one team along with the Bruins, Flyers, and Blues who have won the most Jack Adams awards. That's four apiece. And just two stats on what Blaschel seems to have accomplished, Ted. Some things that you can sort of get a handle on maybe. No team has more points from players under the age of 25 than the Red Wings. So he has a young team. And these players have a hundred and ten points. these players under the age of twenty five The devil's led in that category last year i will I will say one thing. I don't
1: think we gave this team or have given this team enough credit for last season. exactly. Take away that segment of time the first month of the season when they were just ravaged with covid i mean yeah. About five to seven regulars, maybe, yeah, about six or seven regulars out of the lineup. You take that segment away, or at least give them, say, a 500 record in that span. they would have been close to a 500 team, Mark. So, actually, if you, okay, obviously, the power play wasn't great. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. If you dig deeper into the numbers, my friend, they did not have that terrible of a season last year and had they play had the full lineup in the month well it would have been the month of january the first month of the season last year who knows maybe they would have gained some more confidence some more momentum mm-hmm. maybe they were a fourth place playoff team last year who knows but they really kind of we should maybe
0: we saw should have seen it coming somewhat yeah uh, And, Ted, the other stat that I did look at was the Wings average 18 hits per game and 14 blocked shots. That's 32 total of factors you can really control. And I know it can be subjective. If you're blocking a lot of shots, it usually means you don't have possession of the puck. And if you're making a lot of hits, it usually means you're chasing the puck. And not all hits are created equal, of course. But the bigger point here, I think, is the buy-in. And if you look at a player like Robbie Fabry – He's second on the team, Ted, with 40 hits behind Adam Ernie, who has 60. Now, Fabry's stats, he has just five goals. He's minus five. Only Sam Gagne is worse as far as forwards at minus seven. Fabry only has five minor penalties. But as Jeff Blaschel sort of gave us some insight the other day, he talked about Fabry knowing that if you play this way, Robbie, you're probably going to get hurt. It's easy to play on the perimeter. But Fabry does get involved with those hits. And, Ted, I can't help but remember the play against the St. Louis Blues in the final minute, the Wings are up by one. This is Fabry on the ice against his former team. And there was a a race for possession at the Wings blue line at the far end of the ice. And there was no way that Fabry wasn't going to beat David Perron on that play. And Perron didn't really put up much of a fight. Fabry stole the puck and he wound up scoring the empty net goal. So if you take a look at Fabry, my question would be, can the wings sustain this level of play? The 32 hits, Ted, I thought there might be a pattern. You know, at one point, if the wings block less than 14, 15 shots, they were four and 10. But then the last three games they won, they only had 15 blocks against Buffalo, 14 against Boston, and nine against Seattle. So every game is different. And there's not one stat that sort of indicates if you do this, you win. But isn't the question more about the mindset and this uh, all-in mentality that we just heard Blaschel talk about it? He's noticed there's not a lot of selfishness on this team.
1: You put it perfectly. I mean, that has been a trademark of the squad this season. Mm -hmm. Can they keep it going? Uh, If they do, so much the better for them. I think they'll be successful for it. But there's no question that they are playing that certain type of way. they're very – they've been resilient. Uh, they're finding ways to win. I know these are all cliches, but it's, they're accurate. And, mm-hmm. you know, you do wonder. I mean, if, you can, if they can maintain this type of level, they – I don't want to – they're going to be a surprise team until the mm-hmm. end up.
0: Okay, let's move on to our interview segment now. Our guest today is former Red Wing Nick Libet. Joining us now is former Detroit Red Wings left winger Nick Libet, who played 14 years in the NHL, the first 12 years here in Detroit, the last two years in Pittsburgh. Nick, welcome to the podcast. And I wanted to start by asking you about Alex Delvecchio, your former teammate, a Hockey Hall of Famer. He'll celebrate his 90th birthday later this week on Saturday, December the 4th. And Nick, going back to 1968-69, your first full year in Detroit, it was also the year that Delvecchio had his greatest offensive season and the year he won his third Lady Bing trophy. So he's 36 years old. He had 25 goals, 83 points. He was plus 42 with only four minor penalties. So, Nick, you had probably watched Delvecchio's career while you were playing in the OHA with the Hamilton Red Wings and with the Memphis and Fort Worth Wings in the Central League. What was that like then, Nick? You're 23 years old, and you're watching Delvecchio still in his prime. Well, Mark, you
3: know it was a you know as a kid growing up in Stratford, uh, obviously you 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 idolized guys like Alex and in Gordy Howe, but we were talking about Alex now, and and it was just a um, uh, he was kind of an icon. I mean, when I'm 35, when he's when he's 35, and I'm 21 coming into the league, um, you know, he idolized a guy like Alex, and and uh, not only was he a, a great great hockey player, he was. Uh, a, a, a great person,
0: you know, also that year, Nick Gordy Howe had his best offensive season 44 goals, 103 points, plus 45 with 58 minutes in penalties, nine power play goals. Del Vecchio, by the way, assisted on more of Howe's goals in the regular season and playoffs 231 of Gordy Howe's goals than any other player. In Red Wings history. You just talked about them being icons. What was it like, though, Nick, that chemistry between Del Vecchio and Hal?
3: Well, it was great because, you know, Alex Alex uh, uh, obviously was a centerman and, and, he, and he used a, a Northland pro hockey stick that didn't have a, a curve in it. It was absolutely dead straight. And, you know, Gordy being a right winger, so Alex obviously could pass the puck on either, either side to his to his right or to his left, but you know, I, and again, I said this earlier. As a, as a kid coming up to Detroit and playing in the National League, and and you don't think about it much when you're a youngster. Your your goal is to play in the league, but then all of a sudden you you come up and and you're playing with with guys like Alex Delvecchio and 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 Gordy Howe. It, it's just it, it's great. I think back now, you know, a number of years later. At, mm-hmm. uh, I I I realize more now how, how great it was, more so than I did then.
0: Nick, I talked to your former teammate Bruce McGregor and former Boston Bruins center Phil Esposito about Delvecchio, and they compared <laughs> Delvecchio to Jean Beliveau, both graceful playmaking centers, captains of their respective teams. Beliveau won 10 cups with the Canadians, including five straight from 1956 to 1960 and Delvecchio won three cups beating Bellevue in 51 54 and 55 and when I asked Delvecchio about the comparisons he was flattered and said that Bellevue was a great hockey player it was an honor to play against him Delvecchio said he also said that Bellevo was a gentleman a big guy who had a bullseye on his back and on his team and Delvecchio said that Belleville went about his business, played well, and was successful in Montreal. And then Delvecchio said something that you'd probably agree with, too. And Alex said, uh, I was pretty quiet, which was kind of, uh, or rather, Belleville was kind of quiet, which was kind of like me. So statistically, Delvecchio outscored Belleville by 62 points during his 24-year regular season career. Beliveau played four fewer years and outscored Delvecchio in the playoffs by 72 points but Nick what do you make of that comparison that Delvecchio is Detroit John Beliveau
3: well I think it's a good comparison uh style of plays were in my mind a little different Alex, Alex was more of a um a, I want to say a, like a darter very skilled uh could could could, could see the ice almost like a a modern version of Gretzky where, where he could see the ice. He passed the puck to people where you, you thought he had no sideline where, when I played against big John Belleville, and he, in my mind, John was more of a swooper, a big guy who, who, who liked to, you know, have a roundabout way of carrying the puck. Uh, Instead of going from A to B, John would go A to B, but in, in a wide circle where Alex would, would, was more direct, but, Definitely, definitely the, um, you know, head and shoulders above all the other centers with a few exceptions in, in, the, in the league when I played.
0: Did you ever, aside from practice, did you get a chance to receive some of those, those passes from Del Vecchio?
3: I, I, you know, it's funny you ask that, Mark. Um, I did. Sid Abel was our coach, and, and at the time I was playing with Gary Unger and Wayne Connolly, and we were younger obviously, and, and, and Alex and Gordy, and then big Frank Mahovlich was playing with them, and, and one game, Sid Abel put me up with Alex and Gordy, and put <laughs> Frank back with uh, Gary and, and Wayne Connolly, and I think that lasted about a, a period, because my game was more, and I could skate and, and play, my, my game was more like up and down, well, I'd be going up and down, and Alex and Gordy would kind of be tick touring the passing it down an R N end to kind of control the play but they, <laughs> that, that was so I said said this isn't going to work but you know I was I was a different style of player uh I, I needed <laughs> I needed guys like Gary Unger and Wayne Alex was he he and uh, Gordy just they controlled the puck and mm-hmm. particularly Gordy but um yeah I did have a, an opportunity not on the power play but yeah regular yeah. regular shift and and uh Sid, Sid saw that this wasn't going to quite not gonna work, work out, and it, and it wasn't Alex's fault. Believe me, it was more mine than anything.
0: It's funny you mentioned that, Nick, because Alex talked a bit about Gordie Howe having a checker on him all the time, and Gordie would go from the right side to the left side. And he described Lindsay as meticulous, that he wanted the puck in certain places. And I can hear what you're saying about give and go and and, and getting that sense, that, uh, that chemistry that they had, whereas you're going up and down, and uh, it makes total sense, doesn't it, when you think about – what what those guys accomplished yeah. is like the the number one line on a team that you know went to the Stanley Cup final, also in the '60s a couple of times against the Leafs.
3: Yeah, it was, but it was almost I think to mark like a uh, almost like a culture change because again I was like 21 when this happened, and and uh, Alex and and Gordy, you know, they're 35, and they they were so used to playing all those years that style of play where not realizing it at the time but again the game was changing and and it was more up and down mm-hmm. which was my style again because I could skate and um it just my type of game didn't fit in with Alex now I'm sure I could have adjusted if 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 it had been a permanent thing but but uh, it wasn't so so I didn't <laughs> so to speak <laughs>
0: You know, you talk about that straight Northland stick that uh, Alex Delvecchio used, and Bruce McGregor said that, uh, and so did Phil Esposito, the backhand pass, they said, is a lost art. But, you know, certainly uh, uh, Delvecchio sending it to the right side made sense with how. But Bruce McGregor talked about those tape-to-tape backhand Mm -hmm. passes over to the other side. I just wonder what your thoughts were about this centerman who could pass equally as well uh, left and right.
3: Well, Alex could. That's one of his, you know, his strong points. He, um, he, he could he could pass to either side. Obviously, on the forehand, it'd be maybe a little harder. But he had he had no problem going to, to you know, to the to the uh, to the left winger or the right winger. It was it was equal. And his stick. I mean, I I kind of wish I had one now because it, it's something that you look at and you say, oh my god, how could you ever play with this? It was dead straight. Danny Olsovich, who was our trainer at the time, Alex never taped his sticks, but only taped sticks, both the blade and the uh, the knob. Uh, that was, you know, most most players are meticulous, and they want to tape their own sticks and be perfect about it. Alex knew, well, Danny would do a good job, so he said, Danny, you do it, and he did it for and years. He did it.
0: So, Nick, uh, just maybe one final thought about Beliveau and Delvecchio. And mm. Maybe you could just talk to us about the strength of those Canadian teams. Again, I mentioned – uh, the Canadians won those five straight before you came into the league, well, well before you came into the league, and they had a lot of success. But for fans who are wondering what the original six and what it was like when Delvecchio and, and Beliveau went up against each other, these two elegant, graceful uh, centermen, uh, maybe you could just uh, talk just a little bit about that rivalry when, when you guys faced off against the Canadians.
3: Well, the Canadians, you know, I caught the, I caught the tail end of, of Detroit's era. Um, and, and you know, good teams with we had a good with older guys like Gordy and Alex and a few other guys, and younger guys like, like myself and Unger and and uh, Peter Stemkowski. But um, it, you know, you, you play against Montreal; they were they were just a, a step ahead of a you know better than everybody else. If mm-hmm. that's the best way to put it, and if you played Canadians, you had to you know had to bring your A game every night, and occasionally you would beat them. But if you didn't have your A game, you know you're in for trouble. I mean, you'd, you'd lose. They—they they were just—they every line they had was was good. You know, they—I I didn't play against the Rocket, but I played against the Pocket Rocket. You know, he was—he was talented also. Mm-hmm. Um, and their defense with Savard and and uh, Lapointe and all those guys and and Kenny Dryden and goal. Oh, my God, it was—it was—it was. It was, uh, it, it was It was almost, it was almost uh, as a young kid, it was almost myself playing in Detroit. It was almost, (laughs) fun's not the right word, but fun to watch them play how good they really were, the Canadians Mm -hmm. back in those days. So, but uh, there was a good rivalry over the years for sure.
0: Nick, looking at your career and what went right with the hockey club when you were first there, and then missing the playoffs seven straight years, that's still the record today in the team's So, 95-year history, seven years with no playoffs. The Wings right now are at five years and counting, and they are talking possibly about making the playoffs this year uh, and to break that streak. But first of all, when we look back at that historic season we were talking about with Delvecchio and Howe, Bill Gatsby was the new coach after 10 years of Sid Abel behind the bench. And you must have been very hopeful. You went from 10 goals to 20 and then from minus 11 to plus 11. So why was that team so successful before, you know, the Harkness era began? Take us back to those couple of years when there was still hope and the team was making the playoffs.
3: Uh, you know, Mark, I talk about that, not frequently, but occasionally to some people and when I first came again we had a, a, a five games into my career uh, that's when the trade with Toronto was made when would when Frank and and Gary Unger and Peter Stromkowski and the rights to Carl Brewer came here
1: mm-hmm.
3: for 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 uh, Normie Elman Paul Henderson and and uh, Floyd Smith and it was a good trade for both teams I mean I, big Frank came over and and, and Ungi was young and Peter was he had played a few years and we had a good mix of old and, and, and young, and, you know, with Gordy and Alex and guys like that. Good young defense with a couple of veterans. And then, for whatever reason, it, it, when, when Ned came in, and, and Ned was probably a great guy, Harkness, that is,
1: mm-hmm.
3: he had no idea how, how, to, how to handle a, a National Hockey League team. And, and then the trade started. And of all the guys on the team over the first few years, um, I was the only guy left on the team and I always say either nobody wanted me or I was too valuable <laughs> to Detroit and uh, you know but you got to gut it out which I did and it was frustrating very frustrating and I always say we had after those trades we had a probably a very good American League team we we didn't have a we we, we couldn't compete night in and night out with uh, mm-hmm. you know the big boys in the league and it was frustrating and uh, it it didn't have to happen but it did so uh, and then they rebuilt, obviously in the '90s, kind of made up for all the, the flaws in the '70s. But uh, it was it was frustrating; it really was.
0: And you know, Nick, when you look back at Ned Harkness, so here's one of USA Hockey's founding fathers, right? He, of course, he was successful at the college level with RPI, Cornell, Union College. In 1970, before he came to Detroit, that Cornell team was the only team in NCAA history to win a national championship with an unbeaten, untied team with a 29-0 record. He was a member of the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame, the first coach to win national championships in two different sports, hockey and lacrosse. So what went wrong? We hear all these stories about darkness with Harkness. He knew the game. Maybe he knew college players, and not all college coaches make successful NHL coaches – but trying to be as fair as you can because you were the only one left there. And it was gut wrenching, like you said, to see this happen, to see him, you know, the first year he was coached, then he became GM. And then all these coaches came in Larry Wilson, Doug Barkley, Ted Garvin, Johnny Wilson. When you look back, like, what, what went wrong with Ned Harkness? Well, Ned, you know, again, a, a very good college coach. I don't, he
3: wasn't ready to come to the National League, number one. He treated, okay. he treated the National Leaguers. Uh, like college kids, uh, he made Peter Stomkowski in training camp one year get get a, get three haircuts in one day because Peter's <laughs> hair was too long. Uh, and a true story. I mean, these are it, it was it was just awful. I remember um, he, he, Ned would always have a favorite line on the ice. He'd have a whistle in his mouth and he'd say go 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 and then blow the whistle to you know to speed up the skate and then slow down and. Sure. One day, one day, I think back, and he—I remember—he tripped. He was skating backwards, and he and he caught his edge, and the the whistle. He had it still in his teeth, and he he blew a couple of teeth out right on the ice. He got up as if nothing had happened. I mean, he was a tough a tough guy, but yeah. he could not relate to to the National Hockey League level of player. He could not. And the, all, every college kid that I ever talked to that played for him loved him. Mm-hmm. but but at the at the National League level he just he just he just couldn't could not relate at all
0: why do you think that you lasted so long Nick as uh as a player who could have been I, you a know yeah I,
3: I I don't know um I remember one game I was the first guy in the room in Detroit Olympia and, and we were playing Chicago and their trainer w- was in our room talking to Lefty Wilson and Danny Olsovich and and uh the, the, they, were, they were talking about the trade. The trade had been made. My, myself going to Chicago for Doug Jarrett. So I kept waiting. I mean, you know, hours, days. All of a sudden, nothing happened. That's the only time that I really, really heard that I was going to be traded. And this was, this was after all the Ned had had gotten rid, or Ned and, and, and Jimmy Bishop with Ned had. Um, made all the, the the moves, you know, sure. traded, you know, good, you know, Peter and, and Bruce McGregor going to New York for like, some guys that were pretty good players, but, but not, not the, the caliber of Bruce McGregor or Peter Snomkowski And, and it was frustrating. Why? I, that's a good question. I don't know why. Um, You know, I, Johnny Wilson came in towards the end and Johnny and I, Johnny was a good guy and Johnny and I really got along well. And Johnny liked my style of play. and, and um, you know, he's, he's complimented me on a few, a few articles that he, he gave many years ago. And, but why? I, I don't know. I guess we'd, we'd have to ask people that are probably no longer around. So I, mm-hmm. I don't have exactly. an answer. I have no regrets. I mean, obviously, I would have loved to have played on a Stanley Cup winner, made the playoffs all those years. But looking back, I don't have, I'm not, I don't have any uh, regrets at all because things, they worked out in the long run.
0: Nick, just a few more questions, and thanks so far for your time. What was it like playing against Bobby Orr of the Oshawa Generals when you were a member of the Hamilton Red Wings in the OHA? or joined the Generals at age 14. He played four years in Oshawa. You know, everyone talks about that pull-away speed of Connor McDavid now, but when you look at the video of Bobby Orr, he seemed like he was gliding, but he was pulling away. So what was it like when – Bobby Orr wasn't even with the Bruins, back with the Oshawa Generals.
3: Oh, Bobby was, in my mind, the best. I mean, right now when people ask me, of all the great players, including Gordy and, mm-hmm. and Gretzky, um, people ask me uh, who, who's the best player you, ever, you, you, you think is the best player. I say Bobby right away because he just changed the game of my era. And you're right. Connor McDavid has that, that pull-away speed. You think he's gliding, then he's got another gear or two. Bobby mm-hmm. was the same way. He he, um, you know, playing junior against him, he was a phenom at fourteen. I mean, he could he could go end to end, and <laughs> and uh, he, you know, and, and I tell a story about we go into Boston. We had being the Detroit Red Wings, and and uh, I I'd, I'd be left wing. I look across on the defense, and I'd I'd see Gary Doak and Dallas Smith, and I I'd room with with Gary in, in Hamilton, and I'd see Gary Dokin in Dallas Smith, and and I'd go. Oh, geez, it's that's good. to shift off, you know, really good. Just we take it yes. easy this year. And you look out there and see Bobby and he said, oh my God, here we go. <laughs> you Because know, it would be a whole, di- a whole different game with him on the ice. It really was.
0: I also wanted to ask you about the 1977-78 season. So you've gone seven years without making the playoffs. The Wings are at five, possibly six this year. And they may not make it next year, so they may tie that record of seven straight. But back in 77-78, Bobby Crom was the coach. He made the playoffs. Bill Ahead scored that game-winning goal to eliminate the Atlanta Flames at Olympia. Nick, you were coming off your fourth straight season of playing all 80 games. The following year, you'd get votes for the Selkie Trophy. So for the Red Wing fans who are really hopeful they're going to make the playoffs, can you kind of describe what it was like? Your seven years and all of a sudden all this momentum. What was that year like?
3: Well, it was great. And I think that was the year. Uh, Mark, is that the year that, that Dale McCourt and the guys came in? I, I'm not sure. I think I think it was Nick. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it was. and Paul Woods. I think we had Paul Woods and Dale McCord and Andre uh, Saint Laurent from the island. I think. But anyway, no, it was it was great because it was just a it was a a, a good feeling. And then I think the first round against Atlanta was only two out of three back then. Your first round, and we. Mm-hmm. And we beat him in Atlanta and then came back and Billy, you know, Billy, like you said, I, I can still picture Billy scoring the goals against, uh it might've been Phil, I'm not sure who it was, but one of the, it might've been Phil Muir because he was down there then, but it was, uh it was exciting. And, and, uh, you, you know, there was a good, again, a good core of young guys coming in with, with some age guys. And then, and then, you know, things kind of went south after that for the, for the second time, you know, right. so, and then, at, you know, and, and Teddy Lindsay, God bless him, we, um, and I know his family, his daughters. Uh, Teddy, Teddy, and I never really hit it off. And then Teddy's the one that traded me to uh, to Pittsburgh, and I was there for two years. But but uh, it 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 could have been a good start, but it, it wasn't. You know what I mean? So unfortunately, I went to Pittsburgh and made the playoffs there for two years that I was there, and uh, that was nice. But it, it, it's just you look back, you wish you'd have had more success in Detroit back in the mid-70s. I would have been, you know, I, I, I don't really uh, talk about it a whole lot. I don't mind talking about it, but I, I don't bring it up. Now, if I had won a bunch of cups back then I might have, but I don't now, so. You, you think back, and uh, just stuff happens, and, and yep. uh, here we are.
0: And finally, Nick, opening night this year, 10 captains were at center ice before the home opener against the Tampa Bay Lightning. There was Steve Eiserman, Lidstrom, Dennis Hextall, Paul Woods, Mickey Redman. When did you find out that you were named captain with the wings, and what does that mean with this storied original six franchise? Well, it,
3: you know, again, it was, it was back – in the Harkness era and, and I was one of the, the, the players that had been there for a while and, and obviously I, I had some ability to be able to play and I, I guess at the time I was the, um, the, the obvious choice. Um, I think I had it for a, a year or so and then didn't mm-hmm. and then he got it back again, so to speak. But uh, it, it, it was an honor, obviously. I mean, once, once you're named a captain, it doesn't matter if it's for a game or two. Or or twenty games, uh, it's it's still an honor to to have that. In particular, you know, this year opening opening night was uh, it was it was quite a treat. To be honest with you,
0: Nick, uh, thanks so much again for your time today talking about Alex Delvecchio and Gordy Howe, the history of the Red Wings, and your time in the game. Fourteen years, six times a twenty goal scorer, thirty one goals one year, and being part of that exclusive group of Red Wings captains. Thanks again, Nick. Okay Mark I appreciate it and thank you. Our thanks again to Nick Libitt. So Ted let's wrap up the show today with some of the big surprises and disappointments we talked about the 16 teams that are at least 3 games over 500. It's still early but in one of your stories at detroitnews.com you listed Raymond and Cider of course as one of the biggest surprises but you also mentioned Calgary Flames, Andrew Mangiapane, Troy Terry, the Carolina Hurricanes, Jack Campbell, the Florida Panthers, the Anaheim Ducks. We mentioned Dallas Eakins early, Sergei Bobrovsky, the Columbus Blue Jackets. They're also three, four games over 500. But... All those different teams and players and trends. What what surprises you, Ted, of some of the things I just mentioned there?
1: Well, I think there's one lately that I don't think I had on that list when it came out, but there's one that's come over last week. You'd probably term it as a disappointment, Mark, but I don't think the Olympics are going to happen. What are your What's your thought on it? I really. The way things are trending here, I don't mm-hmm. think the NHL going to China for the Olympics.
0: Well, These Ted, are- just just the just the COVID issue. If if you go over there, and if you allow, say, well, Lucas Raymond could be on the Swedish team. He could make that team if he goes over there and and has COVID. It's possible he had. He'll have to stay there for two weeks. So that's the true. Th- the tournament I- the tournament could be over, and you're back here battling for a playoff berth without. Um, without Tyler Bertuzzi uh, on the road in Canadian cities and heading out west for that big series, at- and they
1: do have, and let's face it, they do have much. I think they have a majority of their Canadian gains, obviously, in the second half of the season. I mean, mm-hmm. I just, Mark, I just think there's too much risk, and it's not trending in a good direction, it really isn't. I just don't see why or how going over there would benefit anybody even i know financially probably maybe but i think there's just too much risk on a lot of different levels that i i guess you probably agree i would think don't you i mean
0: well in fact in your disappointments your list you had COVID 19 for sure it
1: hasn't gone away you see guy jordan bennington bertuzzi the other day i mean there's cases popping up every day, it seems like.
0: And finally, Ted, the other disappointments you mentioned were the Montreal Canadiens, the Islanders who are in here on Saturday having lost nine in a row, the Blackhawks again with all the on and off ice problems, uh, Alexi Lafreniere, uh, the Seattle Kraken who actually have well, so a The Blackhawks
1: in Seattle, they've mm-hmm. kind of turned around here lately. I'm probably, uh, but I tell you what, Mark. The Kraken impressed me the other night. That was that's a fun, hard charging team. I, they're, I could see them making a little bit of an impact. But the Islanders, let's talk about them just for a quick second, Mark. Mm-hmm. I mean, you. Uh, it's neither here nor there, but boy, you really wish the, If I was them, I'd be a little disappointed and upset with the league. I mean. Not having not jumping in and canceling or postponing some games right a little quicker than they did, their season might be shot already. And simply because of the fact they were playing with their minor league team essentially for about a week or two, it seemed like they have a huge hole to overcome. Now, I understand the road games, you know, they were they started the season 12, 12 games on the road because your arena wasn't done, but. Mm-hmm. The COVID stuff there toward the end of it, they really should have – that was not fair almost to a certain extent. I mean, playing with their eight or nine minor leaguers, which more or less the Wings did too, I guess, like we were talking earlier. Um, It was a difficult situation, and it kind of really puts them behind the eight hole.
0: Ted so thanks again for your time today today's podcast episode 63 and for more Red Wings coverage you can check out Ted's stories at detroitnews.com and you can always find us on our Octopulse Facebook page on Twitter Instagram Instagram stories and Snapchat thanks again for listening everyone we'll talk to you soon